0: This is Inside the Military Mind, addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families with your host, Dwayne France, Brought to you by Family Care Center, offering behavioral health services for both children and adults, and specializing in services for military families and veterans. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family. Now, here's Dwayne France. Hello and welcome to Inside the Military Mind. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be talking about mental health and wellness for the military-affiliated population. Coming up in today's guest segment, I'll be having a conversation with Kirsten Belair, a licensed professional counselor who serves as the Director of Behavioral Health for Mount Carmel Veteran Services. Later, I'll be sharing the Homefront Military Network Resource of the Week, Give an Hour. On this week's Insight segment of the show, I'd like to talk about the stigma against help-seeking, especially regarding mental health, in the military-affiliated population. In just about any community, people speak in lowered voices about the place that people go when they're in psychological distress. It's derogatorily called the loony bin or the nut house. The conversation gets chill and people quickly change the subject when you hear of somebody who went to the local psychiatric hospital. We don't react that way if someone's admitted to the actual hospital, of course. Then it's sympathy and get well cards and how can I help. Just like any other cultural group, the military population is no different and possibly worse. The stigma against help-seeking for psychological distress is strong in the military and veteran population. We talk about sending someone to the fourth floor in a derogatory way, because several psychiatric units on military bases happen to be on the fourth floor of the base hospital. People who experience a crisis are somehow seen as weak or deficient in some way, and are treated as such. The simple truth is, military service is inherently dangerous, and with danger comes psychological stress. With psychological stress comes the need to address it. The military community will not effectively address the psychological stress of its service members without reducing the stigma against seeking help. A 2014 study by the RAND Corporation identified a number of strategies to develop stigma reduction programs. The first strategy to increase treatment-seeking behavior is to reduce the impact of stigma itself. Webster's Dictionary defines stigma as a mark of disgrace associated with a particular circumstance, quality, or person. As long as seeking help for psychological distress is seen as disgraceful, then it'll be stigmatized. Stigma itself is inherently isolating, causing someone to either withdraw from others or be separated by others. The sense of isolation only increases the impact of stigma. It's important to understand that by marginalizing someone for seeking treatment, the sense of disgrace is alive and well. Another strategy to increase treatment-seeking behavior and reduce stigma is to change the culture around seeking help. Admittedly, and Kirsten and I will talk about this in our conversation later, there is a suck-it-up-and-drive-on aspect of military service. This causes many service members and veterans to avoid seeking medical treatment for physical injuries, and it's even more pronounced for psychological concerns. There's been a cultural shift over the past 15 years or so, and this is likely due to the fact that the psychological impact of military service is undeniable. The suicide incidents and rates among service members, veterans, and their families is increasing. Senior leaders in the military are speaking out about their own mental health experiences. Courageous people are starting to stand up and say, look, it's okay not to be okay. That leads to culture change. Another key factor in making it more likely that service members will speak out about their mental health challenges is to increase peer support. One study showed that veterans apply stigma differently to themselves compared to how they apply it to other veterans. In other words, we think that others will find it disgraceful for us to seek treatment, but we will not find it disgraceful for others to seek treatment. Peer support is critically important for members of the military-affiliated community to understand that they're not alone and that there's nothing wrong with seeking treatment. Along with this, however, we must understand that peer support needs to be effective. We can't care for someone if we're not healthy ourselves. Anyone working with psychological distress needs to be trained in a basic level of mental health awareness, confidentiality, suicide prevention, boundaries, and a range of other aspects when it comes to mental health. Simply experiencing the condition and then feeling better doesn't automatically make one an effective peer. Another strategy to increase treatment-seeking behavior is to change how the military community perceives the effectiveness of mental health care. This is something strange that I've noticed when it comes to veterans in therapy, and again, Kirsten and I will talk about this a little bit later in our conversation. But for many service members and veterans, negative experiences apply to all therapy, but positive experiences are contained to a single instance. Bad experiences with therapy are considered the norm, with good experiences the exception. If a veteran has a bad experience with one or two therapists, then they go back to their friends and say, therapy sucks, don't bother, it didn't work, it's garbage. If they happen to have a good experience, however, they go to their friends and say, you should go to this therapist. Most therapists are bad, but this is a good one. We need to change that around so that good experiences with therapy are considered the norm, with bad experiences the exception. Mental health professionals have a role to play in this, of course. We have to ensure that we're providing effective care in the best way possible and minimize the negative experiences. But the military-affiliated community also has a role to play in it. Finally, we must make a concentrated effort to reduce barriers to seeking mental health care. This is as big a challenge as all the rest of them. The affordability, the availability, and the effectiveness of care must be addressed. Mental health professionals are health professionals, just like a dentist or a doctor. However, insurance does not adequately cover mental health treatment. Many veterans and their families do not have access to adequate insurance to meet their needs. The effectiveness of care must also be addressed. Mental health professionals who don't understand military culture, but treat military service members is a significant barrier to care. And this goes back to the good experiences versus the bad experience to treatment for a community to effectively address stigma against help seeking. There must be a concentrated effort to improve the way that we encourage service members, veterans and their families to access effective care. And the question is, if you're listening, how can you make a difference? So I appreciate you listening to some of these insights. Love to hear what you think about it. Share your thoughts with us by dropping an email to militarymind at fccsprings.com. Coming up in today's interview segment is my conversation with Kirsten Belair, the Director of Behavioral Health for Mount Carmel Veterans Services. Kirsten is a licensed professional counselor and is employed as the Behavioral Health Program Manager at the Mount Carmel Veterans Service Center. She graduated from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs with her master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. She's the daughter of a Vietnam veteran and, after working in the community as a clinician, she decided to join Mount Carmel's mission to help our military community. Kirsten's role at Mount Carmel is to ensure that the behavioral health services offered are culturally competent, military-specific, and accessible to their clients. Let's get into my conversation with Kirsten and come back afterwards to hear about this week's Homefront military network resource of the week. You've been the lead clinician for Mount Carmel for a number of years. Um, we've worked together during that time, but for the audience, what brought you to working with the military family specifically? Why did that interest you?
1: Yeah, the, great question. Um, and I will make it as succinct as possible. <laughs> so my dad was a Vietnam veteran and I'm pretty sure he struggled with some PTSD, maybe not from direct service, but just in general. So military has always been something that's been um, on my heart. And then also my daughter's biological father was active duty Air Force when we met. And that was right before 9-11. 9-11 happened. He volunteered to be one of the first tours over and building a relationship via email, um, journeying with him as I could or could not uh, during his deployment and then the effects of coming home I think really resonated with me and then just being here in this community where you don't have to look but a few feet away and you're probably gonna run across across excuse me somebody who has served so um, it's just a passion of mine and I think that the military um, service members and the culture itself is is just one that I have utmost respect for, and I just wanted to be able to give back and be competent in what I was doing.
0: You know, I think that's, we all have a reason why we get into this, right? And, and, and my father being a Vietnam veteran, in my experience and stuff like that. And so it, that's the military side, but I think it's also helpful for people to understand like who we are as therapists, right? You know, what, what you know, why we're there. So why mental health for you? How, how did that start?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, how personal do we get on this show? Um, I I will say that for me, having um, a you know a dysfunctional family and some domestic violence I had experienced being in the client chair uh, through my teen years and and twenties, and then I had the opportunity to co lead a women's group, and I felt more rejuvenated and. Um, just impacted. It was the most beautiful experience I think I've ever had. And so because of that, that kind of led me into I want to do this for for a profession, you know, I was kind of doing admin stuff. And that then led me into finishing my bachelor's in psych and then getting my master's in counseling, Um, which was like, I don't know if your program was like this, but it was like therapy boot camp. Uh, But I still love understanding you know ourselves as humans, and and the family system, and why we do the things we do, um, and seeing people flourish and grow and recover. Like I had to recover from my own PTSD experiences, and knowing that that can happen, and you can live free of that is is something I want to continue forward, just breaking breaking free, breaking um, the stuckness and, and getting out of the, the holes that we feel like we're in is a journey that I've experienced. And I just want to continue to walk with people as they do that. It's an honor.
0: I think that's one of the things, um, especially with the mental health profession, is lived experience, right? You know, the best preacher's is a former sinner, so to speak, yeah. right? Or, or the uh, the concept of, of young and the wounded healer is the best healers are those who overcame their own wounds. Is that how you see bringing your lived experience in working with clients?
1: I think so. Um, I think <laughs> I've noticed that, uh, you know, yeah. I can sit across from a client and there's not too much that'll shake me. But if we have clinicians who maybe don't quite have that as we would call it, lived experience, you know, or the painful learning or the pasts, they don't sometimes know what to do with some of the very dark, uh, deep, heavy, awkward conversations and topics that, that need to come up because that's what we carry and that's our truths and the depth of us. Um, so I definitely think it, it, de- it plays a part. I have heard that uh, statement of what is it? Uh, clinicians like psychology or psychiatrist psychologist or whatever, just trying to fix themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think that it's, it's just that journey to recovery from our own painful pasts, per se. Yeah, that, that plays a part. But we're not sitting in front of a client, hopefully. We're not sitting in front of a client having it about us. We're really sitting in front of a client saying, there is hope, there is recovery, I've walked it, I just want to journey with you through this season, so...
0: I, I, and you bring up a great point though, because and as you mentioned, we we do have to confront our own stuff in our oh, yeah. clinical um, training um, and and I saw it, you probably saw it that, you know, fellow students that were wanting to become therapists that um, maybe hadn't healed from their own uh, concerns in that way of I'm going to be a healer for others so that I don't have to confront my own healing that can be a challenge
1: absolutely absolutely and I think that's part of the for those of us who know the Johari's window it's the hidden pieces Um, I think the best clinicians are the ones that are able to and desiring to consistently face themselves to grow to be challenged to do their own therapy, um, because we're ever evolving and life doesn't stop throwing punches just because we're getting older or more seasoned in our, you know, clinical experiences. And it's just the human experience. And I don't think that, as clinicians, we're absolved of that. Um, so to kind of go through any program and think, you know, I don't have any squishies is what I call them. Um, I think that may not be, quite the case. You just haven't identified what maybe some of those squishies are.
0: You know, and, and this may be good. It, people who listen to this, and, and even we both encourage mental health professionals who have military background to get into the field, right? Because yeah. there's not enough of us, yeah. so to speak. But um, what would you say to somebody listening who may be considering mental health as a career field, right? Whether they're a military spouse or a veteran or just somebody that wants to is interested in inside the military mind, but they think, well, maybe I could do what? Kirsten and the Dwayne do.
1: Ooh, I love that. Uh, so I guess I'll just be raw and honest in my answer, because I'm sure you'd want me to lie to you today, right? No. Um, I would say this. I believe the counseling journey is not about fixing people. If that's your mission, it may not be a good fit for you. To me, the counseling journey as a clinician is just to walk alongside and be with people in their pain, and their suffering, in their joys, in their triumphs. And not about fixing, but just again experiencing and supporting the human journey, and maybe highlighting the areas that that are keeping them from getting to the point or to the places that they want to go uh, in healing. So, not so much to fix it. And I think the other thing is, if you're if you're kind of in this, it takes it takes an amount of ego strength to admit to yourself whether you're doing this for your glory or truly to serve other people. Um, and if you have a, a, a servant heart and your desire is to help other people and not for your own glory, then I think that it's a good profession because you likely won't necessarily burn out quite as fast.
0: Nor will you get the glory. Yeah, right, because <laughs> yeah, you, you don't.
1: And, and we shouldn't, I mean, you know, mm. we're supposed to be mirrors. The glory is really in, in the people who can make the changes and brave those new territories and kind of come out of the valleys um, of suffering.
0: You know, and in, in this is something that, I, and I don't think we've brought it up on the show before, and although we have had these conversations with clinicians, but a lot of our clients sort of have this idea about what a therapist is. You and I are both licensed professional counselor, but there's like six flavors of us, but yeah. everybody just sees them as doc. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, the differences maybe between master's level clinicians, clinical yeah. social workers, marriage family therapists, and what we do?
1: Yeah. So, I'll start with the intern piece. Um, I think is because I supervise a lot of graduate interns at Mount Carmel and what I find about them is that they're, they're eager and they're fresh and they want to hear your story and they're not coming in with a lot of kind of the, that seasoned clinical bias, I can see what's coming five miles away, right? They just have that purity to them and it, it is more on the relationship side than maybe the diagnosis side. Um, even though the diagnosis is important. And so, again, just the learning piece. I think the fascinating thing is, for example, if you're looking at an LMFT, which is a licensed marriage and family, counselor right that track is really coming from the systems perspective not necessarily looking at just the individual but what are the influences outside of that person whether it's family or work or culture or country or the world that are in impacting that person and so they have a, a really beautiful like look at at how to do their yeah. yeah yeah um and then, you know, when you look at LPC, I think that we really do hone in, and LCSWs too, but we, we hone in on the, the real individual work. Um, and that doesn't mean that we can't do couples and family and do systems, right? But that's usually more of our training is the the we're going to be down in the dirt with you and, you know, hopefully helping to dig out of the mud, um, just the... The raw therapy piece. I know with LCSWs, which is the licensed clinical social workers, they have the blend of the therapy, but then also the social work side. So they're looking systemically, but they're also looking at um, you know navigating, kind of directing a little bit more than just sitting with somebody, no matter where they want to go. I'm not saying that for that's for everybody, right? Because I'm not going to speak for all of you who might be listening. Uh, and then you have um, those are the main three. And then you have you know the psychology and psychiatry so so for those who don't know or some of you who are like me that would struggle with the two so psychology is hugs right psychiatry is drugs so a lot of times you know we have people who are looking for mental health help they're going to a psychiatrist but they don't understand that the psychiatrist is there for medication not for necessarily the the weekly therapy some i think some do that but then they get disheartened because they're like, well, I'm just taking these pills, but I'm not able to really talk and process. Whereas the psychology piece, they can do the talking, they can do the assessments and things like that, that you might need, let's say for VA disabilities. Um, But then they can do the treatment, but not the med piece. So yeah, I think we all have beautiful gifts and talents and and specialties that blending together is, um, it makes a, a really wonderful Kind of option, like a, a wonderful bucket of options. I will say this: when you said "doc," <laughs> yeah, I've had I've had quite a few uh, veterans that have called me, you know, the the head shrink and doc and everything. I am not a doctor. No. I would love to mm-hmm. get my Ph.D., but uh, I will not take that credit. Uh, I give that to those who've earned it, but. You know, I do the best that I can with with what I've got.
0: Well, and I think there's this, I, people have an idea of what a, a shrink is, right, or a or, or, or the therapist or whatever you want to call. You know, if you're a guy, you have a goatee. I have a goatee, but smoke a pipe and you got patches on your elbows, right? You know, so <laughs> yeah. they have this idea of Freud. Yeah. Or if you're a female clinician, then you're this maybe a earth mother yes. type, right, yeah. very gentle. And, and, and so people have these preconceived notions, and it comes from media, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Somebody said, you know, I need to see a psychiatrist because that's what Tony Soprano saw. During The Sopranos, he was seeing a psychiatrist. Right. When, and, and people just really don't understand the, the really differences in the disciplines, um, which is where they get confused with, you know, calling you doc.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I will say I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you how many shows and movies I've watched where they go to a psychologist or, a, a, a you know, a couple's counselor or whatever, and I'm sitting there going – what like that is not how we do sessions oh my gosh if that's what people are expecting they they might have something else in store um yeah it's 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 a unique journey it's different than what i think people anticipate um but i think that as long as you're open to the journey itself that's what matters and i know for me i believe the counseling room and experience should be one where you feel safe where you don't feel judged, where you don't feel like somebody's trying to force you into certain directions, but where you can just bring the deep, dark dirties or laugh your butt off, um, but it feels like a good fit. And so I think just like any other relationship that we could have, there's some that are going to feel like a good fit and some that don't. And so if you ever sit across from a counselor and you're like, oh, this doesn't feel like a good fit, you know, it's okay to say maybe somebody else would be a better fit. Don't give up. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean the counseling field is is wrong for you. It just means it may not have been a good fit.
0: No, and I think those are a couple of great points. And I, I think I had a colleague mention one time how crazy our profession is, is you could be talking about some of those deep, dark dirties that you're talking about at one hour. In the next hour, you're talking about mom's lasagna. Yes. right. Yes, I mean, and just yes. how how different it can be. And, and we meet everybody where they're at. Uh, People who are listening uh, know they've heard of Mount Carmel and the wide range of services that Mount Carmel provides. How do you see what you do, the behavioral health services, integrating with all the other stuff that Mount Carmel does?
1: Well, as when I used to work uh, private practice, it was interesting because I really wasn't a silo, so I would work with uh, an individual, and let's say they were struggling with employment, And we'd check in week after week, hey, were you able to complete your resume? Hey, did you put your resume out? And it wasn't really happening. And there was only so much I could do as the clinician. But the wraparound services at Mount Carmel um, are so great because now if I have a client in that situation, I can literally walk them over to our transition and employment team and get them those extra special um, specialized kind of services that our transition and employment team do and that that support or if they're struggling with homelessness or you know financial struggles, I can't do anything about that as a clinician, but I can take him to our veteran and family resource team and, and help that way. So it's kind of like, again, the wrap around. Our mental health is impacted by our lives, by housing, like you were saying earlier in the day, um, by finances, by all of these things around us, and all of these things around us are impacted by our mental health. And so to think that there's only one direction, that's not necessarily the case. So again, the wraparound services are phenomenal.
0: You know, I think it's really important. I mean, people intuitively know this, but to be told that mental health doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? You know, in between everything else, that distress that you're feeling, um, you know, when you leave the house, you're carrying with you into that job interview or avoiding that job interview because of this, right? And so Mm -hmm. really being able to say these are the things that we do very well, but then there's other things that we simply don't do and being able to have connection to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like when I ride my motorcycle, I think about riding in my, you know, within my limits. I think it's the same thing. I need to know what I can do well, and then again, pass or move forward to people who who can help better. Um, as you were talking, I was like, it's it's really kind of cool because I. We've had a lot of people who've come in and they've been doing counseling and they're struggling and they're feeling depressed and they're feeling like they're not able to help their family because they can't find employment or, um, you know, they weren't able to sustain employment. And then, like, seriously, as soon as they get a job, not always, but as soon as they get a job, they're like, see ya, and life is good for them again. Mm -hmm. And so to think that, again, a solution is not simple, but simple, is getting a job could increase somebody uh, and, excuse me, increase somebody's mental health. I mean, that's that's something that I don't think as a clinician we should ignore either.
0: Right. Hey, if financial stability, financial stress, right, yeah. is is significant for a lot of people. And again, as, as we've talked before, our colleague, Josh Kramer, you know, you can't talk about your inner child if you don't know where you're sleeping that yes. night. Right. Yep. Being able to have that stability, if we think about Maslow's hierarchy is you're not able to be the best person you can be if you're worried about how you're going to pay the bills. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. I think that, you know, in tandem with that, it's like once we can get that stabilization, then it may come to let's look at what are the patterns and choices that I'm making in my life or potentially why I'm making those choices that are keeping me in financial dire straits every month um, and breaking those type of habits. So it can be this beautiful sweet spot of, again, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, getting those base needs met and at some point looking at the at the drivers that have taken us to those struggling points.
0: And, and is it also, I believe it's the case, but, but in for our conversation, is it also back to you, right? That person who has uh, come in and said, well, I, I need money for, you know, car note this month and a new water heater that month and all these other, and they're accessing Mount Carmel's other services. Yeah. And they're, you know, let's say going through all the other things and they can't find stability. Um, then they have the ability to connect with somebody who can address some of those underlying issues.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, um, and if 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 they don't, that's okay. What I love about Mount Carmel, Duane, is that kind of being a nonprofit, it's it it allows us to not have it be all about us. We we really are a mission of collaboration with the community, and so in like our gateway program, just sitting down with somebody and kind of scrubbing their behavioral health needs, and then getting them connected to the amazing organizations here in our area and like Family Care Center who you work for and other specialty places that's going to give them the best strategic interventions you know based on their needs is huge so
0: well, and I think that, um, again, if somebody's struggling with employment, right, or, or, you know, there's a number of different partners Mount Carmel has as Volunteers of America, right, uh-huh. again, homelessness doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's usually, especially when I was working in homelessness, one of the reasons why I left that one, it was a lot more like social work than, than, than uh, psychology that I wanted. Um, but also is we, we could get them a job, right? We could dress them for success. We could even get them in a house. But if we didn't address those underlying things about why that stuff fell away in the first place, then the problem wasn't truly solved.
1: Right. It would just replicate. And I think that's um, – that's an, what am I trying to say? That's something that I think all of us can look at our – if we find ourselves in continued stuck places or struggles – Is there something within us that is contributing to that? And if that's the case, we need to take a look at it. And sometimes either A, it's too scary to do alone, which is where a clinician could be helpful, or B, I'm just blind to it and I can't see it. And that, again, is where a clinician could help to highlight the areas that we may be um, unaware of.
0: Yeah. And they definitely want to get into that. You're listening to Inside the Military Mind with me, your host, Dwayne France. Today, I'm having a conversation with Kirsten Belair, director of Mount Carmel Behavioral Health Services. So talking about some of those things, right, some of those repeated things that situations people find themselves, what are some of the challenges that you've seen when it comes to behavioral health for service members, veterans and their families that may be different than what you saw in private practice?
1: Yeah. Whew, great question. Um, I would say if we're starting on the service member side, so those who are currently serving, I still hear, even today, the fear and concern that if command finds out that they might be struggling or having certain thoughts or whatever, that they fear their job is at risk. And so they want to know that there's confidential services where they can express and, and process through without, again, the risk of we also have veterans um, who have you know top security clearances and are like, if I ever had a diagnosis like this, I could never do you know something in the field again, which I think is disheartening because um, just to go on a medical model. <clears throat> we, can, we can break our leg, we can break our arm but we're able to recover and run again or work again or do whatever and people wouldn't question, oh, you, you, know, you basically broke your leg and you can't ever do anything again. But yet for mental health, it seems like sometimes it does resonate like that. Like once somebody is diagnosed with a mental health um, struggle, then it's like this permanent stamp. So I think for that, uh, that's been a little bit of a barrier. Also for those who are serving the schedule right? Because they're going TDY or you have deployments or whatever. So getting the consistent care because we find that, you know, the more regular that we're working with somebody, the more traction we can get in the therapeutic realm. Um, as for veterans, I think, A, if you're looking at the eras of Vietnam, again, during that season of time, mental health was not a welcomed thing. It was something that was kind of either not talked about, ignored, or, you know, a substance substances That's not even a word. (laughs) But basically like drank away, right? Like we didn't really talk about it. We didn't know what to do with it. Um, So now for our Vietnam era veterans, I think there's this decade conditioning of not talking about it. And then when they do finally start talking about it, they're finding some relief. But a lot of times like they, they just don't. So, for example, my dad, who's the Vietnam veteran, he didn't even sign up for the VA until like three or four years ago. And so all of his years, he didn't really associate, he was like, that was a scene of season of my life, but I don't deserve any benefits and I don't access that and all that kind of stuff. But actually, um, you know, he would be eligible for services through the VA. I think two, it's, it's again, it's the stigma of weakness and and we find this not just in the military, right? But with first responders as well. So if we're talking about the police force or or firefighters, or even (laughs) bear with me when I say it this way, like in, in. a a male culture, a male dominated culture. It's not one that's, that's really familiar with or, or open arms to, Hey bud, let's sit down, let's have a real heart to heart and, and get deep and connect. It's, I've had so many clients who have one of those deep connections to just talk real with with another man and they get teased for it they get shamed for it they get shut down and the only comfortable conversation is around sports or certain topics like that so um so i think that piece too is you know what in growing up what did i think about mental health or what was i taught about mental health was it a weakness because if I perceive it as a weakness and I don't wanna be perceived as weak, I don't wanna see myself as weak, then I'm not gonna go receive services, right? If it's, what did the culture tell me about mental health? How is that influencing my decision? Can I have access? That's the other piece too. Like we have insurance now. Uh, we work with a lot of people who, let's say that one of the people are, is you know recovering from PTSD, but then they're also getting couples counseling, but then they're also having their kids in counseling. Well, we know with TRICARE, it's a $30 copay, so we now have multiple people utilizing TRICARE, and one week that could be $90 or 120 a week. That's a lot of money. Um, so I'm, I'm saying a lot of things, right? But I mean, just to su- suffice it to say, there's tends to just be kind of barriers, but definitely with the military, I think those are the main ones.
0: Yeah, you know, and definitely, I think those are some really great points in, in, in breaking some of those out. First, the idea of active duty military. Um, we're we're 20 years into right the the current global war on terror, and so our senior leaders today enlisted right after 9/11. I, I, when I was in Afghanistan, it was only me it, it, at a 77th in person platoon. Only me and one of my squad leaders were in before 9/11. Mm-hmm. Everybody, my platoon leader, all the section sergeants. Um, and so now you may hear senior leaders such as maybe the sergeant major of the army or a post commander saying well i'm going to therapy it's okay but it's different for senior leaders nobody's going to rag on the brigade commander sitting in the mental health clinic but that pfc who's sitting next to him better watch out
1: yeah and and honestly i've heard that because i've been on fort carson uh quite a few times and i've heard command say you know, your mental health matters, and it is okay to seek services or to get help or to talk to somebody. But you're right, for the, the lower enlisted, they're they're definitely afraid, and, and they don't trust it. They really don't. Um, and I think that there's been at least some stories that have been shared with uh, me and my team where it's pretty valid when they did share, then all of a sudden they were getting med boarded, and that's not what they wanted. They wanted to stay in, and they weren't allowed to anymore so
0: yeah i think that's important for mental health professionals who may be listening working with veterans is um it's not the senior leaders who have to buy into the vision it's the mid-level managers right so the the battalion sergeant major the brigade commander can walk up in front of the formation and say you know reach out and get help and you'll be trusted but that specialist or even that sergeant is sitting next to the person that they've been closest to for the last 18 months. Turn on the corner, they say, you better not say anything, yep, yep, right? Yep. And so it's those mid-level leaders that we need to really help them understand that it's okay to reach out rather than the senior leadership.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's also, I mean, we're coming up against a culture, a culture of of silence and of not engaging in those discussions of you know, teasing or jokes that that infer that if you have mental health issues. I mean, the fact that they even say, "Hey, you're going to see the head shrink," that can actually be pretty demeaning to the process of going to somebody for your mental health. Um, so you're you're bucking up against a culture that has been, you don't talk about that unless you're bleeding or whatever your mission forward. You know, just suck it up, Buttercup, or whatever you say like what are some of the phrases it, it, that's that? that's a good heard? one
0: that's the one right <laughs> know, but it, it you know but that's some of the challenge um and then you carry that out that is that is sort of an intrinsic characteristic of the military is the stoicism male or female it doesn't matter right yep. but yep. the stoicism this this sort of um uh, silent strength um and then we lose our extrinsic characteristics i don't wear my uniform anymore i don't have to stand in the rain if i don't want to but but veterans will carry some of those intrinsic characteristics out and that's one of them is still this desire or need to sort of suck it up
1: yeah and I, I you make a really good point because there are intrinsic values that each branch right has and i think that anybody who has served and especially long term served they really hold up to those values, they mean something. And, I, and I've heard that that is a struggle in the transition process of coming out into civilian and they don't understand why civilians are what they would call lazy or not taking their job seriously or not being ethical or certain things like that. I mean, it is an intrinsic built in who they are and they just continue that going forward.
0: And I think that's one thing where a mental health professional can help, right? You don't always have to come to a therapist if you're quote-unquote crazy. I mean, unfortunately, many times with us, if we were medical doctors, we'd be emergency room doctors, right? The people coming in are bleeding from a thousand cuts, whereas... If only somebody would, you know, do some proactive stuff and and say, you know, how can I psychologically transition out of the military as much as I physically transition out of the military? That's another place that mental health professionals
1: can support. Totally. You know, I've, uh, I've had enough conversations with people and I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I didn't have any classes on how to raise children right and so it was fascinating because I'm sitting in undergrad taking a a development across the lifespan course and I remember having my professor and she was this petite woman in this very large auditorium and she's tiny down there but she's like all right everybody so what does it take in order to get your driver's license and people said well you have to take your test and then you have to practice driving and then you take your driver's test and then you have to get insurance and blah 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 and I'm like she's like yes exactly she said what do you have to do in order to get a college degree and so people were like, well, you have to study and you have to suffer through really boring classes and you have to pass tests and you have to, you know, get all of these credits and stuff like that. And then you get your degree. She said, right. She said, what do you have to do in order to have a kid? And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty simple answer, <laughs> but I, I, I was really humbled by that because one of the most important jobs that we have, for example, in my opinion, is being a parent and I... I didn't have the education, the training to do that really effectively. And what I learned in my development classes and what I learned through therapy and what I learned in my trainings has has helped me. I'm by no means a perfect parent, but I feel like I'm more effective and I've been able to break past cycles because I'm not deferring to what I was brought up with. I'm more informed. And so I think the counseling uh, relationship can give us that too, just a different perspective on something, you know, relationship struggles or even employment or whatever. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that we're bleeding out. It can just be a, you know, like a chiropractor, I just need a little adjustment. Woo, that's better, right? But for our mental health.
0: And, and some of that, though, is that um, it, it always seems to come afterwards, right? It's when yeah. we're twisted up in knots that we reach yeah. out, you know, yeah. let's say. For the chiropractor, where I know you've, I'm certain you've had this experience where after going through a period of time, veterans are like, well, why aren't they teaching this stuff in basic training, right? Yeah. But because they didn't know, well, in, in whether when you're in the machine, it's very hard to understand what it's going to be like to be outside the machine.
1: Right. Well, and plus the fact that when you're in the machine, it's very hard to move the machine when you're just a bolt. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not not to diminish, right? But I mean, I think about a right. car. Like, and how can one. Very you know, small cog. That? Yeah.
0: Important cog. Every cog is important yes, in the machine. Yes. But the minute that cog is ejected from the machine, another cog is slipped into place.
1: Exactly. And, you know, just again, I think for most of us, it's just our culture to not deal with it until it is an issue in a way. Uh, maybe that's, you know, generational. Um, I think it is. But also, when we're looking at the military culture, we're looking at the servitude, right? You, you're you going in to serve. And so a lot of times for someone to say my mental health is important means that they have to put them before somebody else. And that's sometimes antithetical to the military's mindset, which is service before self, right?
0: Again, I think that carries into that, um, those intrinsic values that made us successful in the military and, and, and arguably could make you successful post-military. Um, but like many things, we take it to a larger degree. But I'm I'm interested, in, and I know what I've seen, um, especially how COVID has really broadened the mm. conversation around mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, people are saying, wow, this all sucks and let's yeah. all talk about how much it sucks. Yeah. Have you seen that with, with your clients or, or in your conversations that now we're having more real and honest conversations about mental health than we did even two years ago?
1: Honestly, yeah. And and I feel like, I hate to say we're forced into it, but it's kind of one of those situations, just like with all the mask mandates, there was no getting away from it. We couldn't distract ourselves and be able to go to the store and not wear a mask, per se. Like, we, we had to comply. We, <clears throat> I think as a, as a nation, potentially as a world, we had to change our lives and our um, behaviors and all that kind of stuff and there was no getting away from it and I think that is where if you can't run away from it if you can't distract it and you can't avoid it or whatever you've got to do something about it and I also think that with the mandatory stay-at-home orders. I mean, families truly were struggling. They were struggling because our system, like the family system is okay if so-and-so is at work and -and so-and-so is doing this and kid kids are doing whatever. But then to have us all in in the same house where <clears throat> excuse me now as a parent i'm i'm teaching math that doesn't even make sense to me anymore um i i, I don't even know what they're teaching <laughs> anymore when it comes to math like that but you know and i'm failing and then my kids are frustrated and all of this kind of stuff it was just like a punch in the face for lack of a better way to say it um that couldn't be avoided i think the fascinating thing that i found though is not has not just has there been like an influx of of need we've seen that and we've heard that um and we we felt it at Mount Carmel, and I think across across our community, we felt it. I mean, there was wait lists where we didn't have wait lists before. Um, but this concept of, you know, being an introvert versus an extrovert. So there was a lot of people who were really actually enjoying and flourishing working from home. And kind of just not being forced into that social engagement, they just were like, "No, this is great, this chill thing." Oh I'm yes,
0: us, us bald introverts were yeah. COVID. It was very, very well. It was
1: rejuvenating mm-hmm. for them, right? But then for people like me, who's an extrovert, I was like suffering inside, and and it's like we didn't have a choice if we wanted to say this isn't working for me. Too bad. Like you didn't have a choice. Too bad. And and just like the military, if something's not working. You know, it's in a way, it's kind of like too bad. Suck it up, Buttercup. Keep going, and um, I think that that just increased uh, a lot of things. So, sorry, long answer, but ultimately, yeah, there's definitely, definitely been an increase in, in people seeking behavioral health and having the conversations. I mean, you just it's unavoidable.
0: And and this is something that we you and I and groups of us, but also we as a mental health community have been having this conversation is historically after a viral pandemic, um, mm-hmm. there's usually a second wave afterwards mm-hmm. of crises, right? Mm-hmm. And so now as we're emerging out of COVID, um, we're likely emerging into crises, um, people going back to work and, and things like that. And in um, yeah. and, and how do we as mental health professionals help the community prepare for this second wave?
1: Well, I think doing exactly what you just did, informing that even though let's say things have lifted and, and things are getting back to normal, that doesn't mean that there's not a tsunami wave that's still on its way. Again, for those who were working from home and really flourishing in that now they might be forced to go back into the workforce. And just because mass mandates have lifted lifted, excuse me, and things are, are changing, doesn't mean that the jobs that they had before are now available to them now. I mean, a lot of places have shut down and sometimes permanently. I'm really bummed. My gym shut down, <laughs> broke my heart. I was like, no, um, but life is ever changed and it's, it's a journey. And I think that's, that's, that's the piece that if we, if we're unaware of a tsunami coming, we're not going to be prepared and we're really going to struggle. But if we know what's coming, we're going to get out of Dodge and do what we need to do. And I think for us as clinicians to not to not fall into that category of, oh, it's going to be fine now that everything is back to normal. Not necessarily.
0: Yeah, no, and I think that's really something that, and that is the goal of a lot of these conversations that we're having is to help individuals. And you kind of talked about it before, how service members and veterans may be hesitant to start counseling or reach out to therapy. Uh, what advice would you give to someone listening either for themselves or even for, you know, their family members? You and I have talked about that sometimes, who may be wondering if therapy is right for them or effective. Um, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, honestly, imagine a really good conversation that you've had with somebody you trust, but it's going to be without the judgment or without the trying to fix you or advise you. It's just allowing you to open up and be real for a moment and, again, not be judged um, and just be exploring and, and curious about yourself. That is what counseling is meant to be, I believe. And so if you allow yourself at least that opportunity, hopefully you're gonna have a good experience. And if you don't, that's okay, because just like every, <laughs> every uh, career choice, you know, you're gonna have people who are really great at their career, people who maybe struggle with it, and whether it's a good fit or not. Um, but to not give up, I think as humans, we're hungry for knowledge in one form or fashion and counseling is just another opportunity for us to get more knowledge not only about ourselves but about you know the human condition and relationships or whatever so why would we deny ourselves that ability to grow internally and externally and how we integrate with the world and interact with the world
0: yeah, I like what you said earlier, and I've used it often myself, too, is you said that we are mirrors, right? Yeah. You know, But we're mirrors in a couple of different ways. Yes, we're reflecting back to the client what we're seeing, but we're also reflecting to the client what has been brought into us, right, our clinical training. I mean, yes, it's a really right. great conversation, but we also have developed clinical skills okay in certain interventions that if you do it this way the same way that you would go to a personal trainer and the personal trainer says you need to lift like that not like this right Right. but but we have yes those that the great conversation skills we're great conversationalists but we also have the clinical training that we're able to reflect to the client
1: yes yeah and hopefully um if if you know our clients are bringing stuff to us we're not us to you know we're not freaking out like other people would like if i was to tell you know my my parents or my friends certain things they might be like well kirsten why are you doing that just stop doing that da da da, da, da right um but you need that space and actually i'll just say you know i'm actually going through some uh, somatic therapy myself and it's been fascinating for me to with all of the clinical knowledge that i have in my head to start to view my my myself and the parts of myself as not enemies and villains and and broken places, but actually as protectors and and, uh, pieces of me that are on the recovery journey and just trying to do the best that they can. And I needed that outside perspective, that outside um, intuition, clinical knowledge, expertise, to be able to get a different view on myself, so absolutely.
0: And, and the other thing that you brought up um, is, is something that I tell people often is that one bad experience with a therapist doesn't mean therapy is bad. Right. That's especially what veterans do is, is they generalize bad experiences, right. um, but they localize good experiences. If they had a good experience with you, that doesn't mean therapy is good. It means you're a good therapist. Right. And so that's one of the things that, and I appreciate that, is, is helping people flip that idea.
1: Yeah. And to know that truthfully there's so many variances of therapy or interventions that, that one can do. Like I had I've worked with a plethora of veterans who were like, Yes, I went through CPT and C B T and EMDR and blah 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 blah, you know, all that talk therapy, you know, four wall stuff and it didn't work. But then they engaged in maybe in art expressions or art therapy. Um, Class, or they started to do trauma-informed yoga or other things. And that's where they found their relief and their recovery. So it doesn't always have to be the four walls talk therapy either. There's a lot of other ways that we can heal emotionally and mentally.
0: Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. So if people want to find out more about you and what Mount Carmel is doing, uh, behavioral health and all the other stuff, how could they do that?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, I would always encourage, okay, I'm just going to be honest, and I am not much of a social media person. Some people are like, go to the website. I'm like, bleh. But actually, our website is a really great resource. So if you go to veteranscenter.org, um, you can find out all of the services that Mount Carmel offers. But also, you can call our front desk at 719-772-7000. And our front desk team is actually very familiar with everything that we have inside Mount Carmel, but also in the community. And as for me, you can just uh, call them to contact me and they will get you, um, connected with me. Wow. That was rough, but you know, it's, it's not all about you, it's, but it it's is not. <laughs> getting people to the right way. Thank yeah. you
0: so much for coming on the show. Thank today.
1: you, Dwayne, for having me.
0: So I hope that you appreciated my conversation with Kirsten. Now I'd like to share the Homefront military network resource of the week, given hour founded in 2005, Given Hour is a national nonprofit organization whose aim is to improve the mental health and emotional well-being of all persons. Given Hour began its work focusing on members of the military, veterans, and their families. For the past 15 years, Given Hour has provided over 340,000 hours of free mental health services. Given Hour's work addresses mental health challenges in our society. Challenges that, when left unaltered, will often result in emotional pain and suffering. By offering hope and help through their three-pillar approach, Given Hour helps communities learn to address these challenges together. The three pillars of Given Hour's work are access to care, culture change, and mental health literacy. Under the access to care pillar, Given Hour believes that they can reduce emotional suffering by harnessing the skills, expertise, and generosity of 4,500 volunteer mental health professionals across the nation to provide those in need with help and hope. Given Hour has been providing the military and Veteran communities no-cost mental health services since 2005. This past year, the coronavirus pandemic added new dimensions to the challenge that service members and their loved ones are already experiencing with deployments, separation and isolation, financial strain, and challenging interpersonal relationships. Not only did the pandemic intensify the symptoms of those with pre-existing conditions like depression and anxiety disorders, but the uncertainty, the financial stress, job losses, social distancing, and fears of the illness are creating a great deal of emotional suffering for a wide range of the population, including children as well as adults. In parallel with the surging need, there's increasing comfort with virtual care within the veteran and military communities, giving many individuals who may not have sought mental health care in the past an extraordinary opportunity. Opportunity to take a new path to wellness. Through a national network of independently licensed mental health providers, Given Hour offers mental health treatment to veterans, service members, and their loved ones. To date, Given Hour providers have reported hundreds of thousands of hours of free therapy, and the number continues to grow every day. Clients are eligible for given hour services if you have served for the U.S. military for any length of time with any branch and any active reserve or discharge status. Or you consider yourself a loved one of someone who has served in the U.S. military and you're experiencing a service-related or post-service-related concern. Given our services complement the Department of Defense and Department of Veterans Affairs health care delivery by serving veterans no longer eligible for health care provided by the VA and non-eligible siblings, parents, partners, and other loved ones. Individuals seeking free and confidential care may go to givenhour.org and click find a provider to receive a list of available providers in your area. Over a thousand given hour providers are offering video or telephone counseling at this time. So if you're not ready for in-person care, options are available to serve you. If you're unsure of what type of counseling would be best for your personal situation, they recommend a broad search of all types of providers. Choose one that meets your travel needs and reach out to them. If they're unable to help, they can recommend a different search criteria to help you find a better fit. Under the culture change pillar, we're at a crossroads when it comes to how our society addresses mental health. We know that one in five of our citizens has a diagnosable mental health condition and that more Americans are expected to die this year by suicide than in car accidents. While many of us are comfortable publicly acknowledging our physical suffering, for which we almost always seek help, many more of us privately experience mental suffering, for which we almost never reach out. Given our leads the Campaign to Change Direction, a collective public health effort with the goal to change the culture of mental health so that all those in need receive the care and support that they deserve. This work has expanded nationally and internationally. Given Hour encourages everyone to pay attention to their emotional health by providing two main tools, the five signs of emotional suffering and the healthy habits of emotional well-being. Creating a common language to identify when someone you love or yourself is suffering and how we can stay emotionally healthy. The five signs are personality change, agitation, withdrawal, the decline in personal care, and hopelessness. Someone may exhibit one or more of these signs. The five signs have been translated into 11 languages and we're proud to have over 700 partners from all over the globe who have pledged to share the five signs with 68 million people. To get involved with the mental health culture change, go to givenhour.org. Under the mental health literacy pillar, prevention and early identification of emotional suffering are essential to good mental health. Given Hour has developed its emotional life skills psychoeducational training for community and corporate groups nationwide. ELS delivers the skills and tools that will empower community members to better care for themselves and those that they love. It provides mental health literacy to support participants' emotional well-being. By learning emotional life skills and teaching them to others, we can prevent emotional suffering and change the culture of mental health. GivenHour offers a two-hour virtual emotional life skills psychoeducational interactive course led by licensed mental health professionals for 15 to 20 participants. Three main parts of the course include early identification, self-care, and creating caring communities. Courses are customizable for specific needs. A pre- and post-training evaluation provides unique insights on the measurable impact of the training. Given Hour has also developed numerous emotional well-being resources and a variety of mental health public service announcements that are accessible on their website free of charge. These resources provide short, actionable ideas to encourage coping skills, communication, and self-care during and after the pandemic. In 2020, Given Hour released 14 different wellness resources, which were downloaded over 10,000 times. If you're interested in learning more about Given Hour, visit GivenHour.org. So thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. It'd be great to hear your feedback. I'd like to answer any questions you may have or know what you want to hear about. What topics about military and veteran mental health are you interested in? Send me an email at militarymind at fccsprings.com, and there's a chance that we'll discuss your topic on an upcoming show. I'd also like to remind you that the information provided on this show is for informational purposes only. While I am a licensed mental health professional, I'm not your licensed mental health professional. If what we discuss in this episode brings up any concerns for you, it's highly recommended that you consult with a licensed mental health professional. Stay tuned for another great show next week. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever. You've been listening to Inside the Military Mind. Addressing mental health and wellness for service members, veterans, and their families. Sponsored by Family Care Center, Behavioral Health Services. Our family caring for your family. FcSprings.com. Tune in every Saturday at 11 a.m. for Inside the Military Mind on KPPF. And listen to the companion podcast on Podbean. Family Care Center is a comprehensive outpatient behavioral health clinic providing critical mental health support to service members, veterans, family members, and our local community. Family Care Center focuses on the mental health and wellness of those who have served our country's military by providing best in class evidence-based therapy, medication management, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Family Care Center's clinical staff is dedicated to meeting
1: every client's outpatient behavioral health care needs. This is Dr. Chuck Weber inviting you to learn Learn more at fcsprings.com. Family Care Center, our family caring for your family.